Ray, welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we got a special guest on for this interview. We got the facial hair and wonderful uh, ministry of uh, Right Response Ministry, Joel Webbin, pastor of Cornerstone Bible Church, right? Covenant Bible Church. Covenant Bible Church uh, in the Austin area of Texas. That's right. Yeah, Georgetown, Texas, far enough out of Austin to where the police don't get fun defunded, but uh, close enough to Austin to where you could commute to work. Awesome. So tonight we're going to be discussing a lot of uh, controversial sh subjects, but they're only controversial because, you know, they're hot takes, but not like, you know, theological orthodoxy controversial. But otherwise, we're going to kind of just discuss, and this is kind of going to be like an iron sharpening iron type of interview is kind of what I'm looking for here uh, as far as edifying the church and thinking outside the box. And Joel Evans, a very creative thinker, I think, in terms of uh, theology. Uh, he's very open about what he believes, even on very minor subjects. But that actually makes me more confident in his ministry. So, you know, he's mostly known for being the post-mill theonomist. Uh, but one of the reasons why he's big is we're about to talk about is uh, his stance against uh, branch covenantism in the church, as I call it. Uh, so we'll dive into that. But first, I want to let you know, uh, Evangelical Dark Web is a Christian news gathering and commentary ministry. Uh, you can support us over at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. We also have a newsletter that goes out just about every day on some of the latest stories in Christian news and church news. And tonight or today, we had a major expose on the He Gets Us campaign that you should definitely want to read. Uh, that video is also on uh, YouTube as well. So subscribe to the channel, like the video. That's the least you can do. Otherwise, the most you can do is head on over to our Patreon-like system at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. We don't use Patreon because they censor Christians and conservatives and stuff like that. So we built our own. Uh, try to be as cancel-proof as possible in this day and age. So anyway, I think the uh, first uh, topic I want to talk about was the branch covenantism in the church. Uh, you know, part of your story is you left the church over this issue, but you also founded a church. Uh, you know, you left California to move to Texas along this issue. So I just want to kind of talk about like the church's response to 2020, uh, where and why it fell flat the way that it did. And uh, why so few, you know, really rose to challenge what many people in the laity not many people in the laity saw that this was wrong, that the church's response was wrong, inadequate, and being like the world. So uh, you, you know, were firsthand into the debate behind the scenes among elders for this issue. So can you kind of just unpack uh, your story with all this? Yeah, sure. So um, first, I just to clarify, I want to say that I left my church over COVID issues and the church's response. I left for a number of reasons, but part of it was just, you know, COVID acted as a catalyst, seeing, you know, the nation and really the whole world's response, but especially where I was in California uh, with Governor Mussolini, you know, overreacting and being a complete totalitarian tyrant. Um, that just kind of, I already had uh, a growing sense that I didn't want to be in California long term. Um, I didn't want to raise my children there. Uh, for the longest time I did, I, I thought I'd be there my whole life because not I never really loved California, but I loved my church. 
Um, but as my wife and I began having more children, uh, then we began thinking, you know, we we want our kids to grow up with grandma and grandpa. You know, so where we are now, we have my parents and my wife's parents, both within a 10 mile radius. Um, and we also have um, aunts and uncles and cousins. And, you know, so we, I think we have 29 family members outside of my immediate family, extended family members on both sides, my wife and mine, all within about a 20 minute drive. And, uh, and so that's just, that's valuable. That's important. Um, I began to change and, and really just repent would be the biblical word and my convictions in regards to what it means to honor my father and mother. Um, you know, so a lot of things, uh, family reasons, um, economic reasons, I want to be able to leave an inheritance to my children's children. Um, I believe that inheritance certainly can be nothing less than a spiritual inheritance, but I would be shocked if it's not more. Um, I do think that a material inheritance is a part of that. So there's all these different factors, but yes, um, uh, my elders and I, we did initially disagree. They all came around, um, eventually to the same kind of position and recognizing that COVID had been overblown. But I think, uh, you know, we disagreed for a few months uh, before they started to kind of, you know, get over this, uh, I don't know, this COVID fear. And in their defense, uh, they wouldn't, you know, they would say, well, we weren't being fearful. It was this or it was that. Um, but a big part of it, I think two things, uh, the church's overreaction to COVID was uh, bad ecclesiology, and then also just not being presuppositional apologist. Um, you know, I think I think that a lot of the church, uh, even guys who would claim to be pre presuppositional in their apologetic, um, at the end of the day, they caved. They they believed that when it came to data about COVID, that it was neutral. And so when I talk about presuppositionalism coming from you know Cornelius Van Til and really fleshed out further with Greg Bonson and these kinds of things, guys like Jeff Durbin, guys like James White. Um, John Frame, he, he's presuppositional and his apologetic. What I'm saying is that neutrality is a myth. And I mean that across the board. Nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. And so, you know, I, my elders, they had enough wisdom and discernment to recognize, okay, CNN's not neutral. Uh, but the WHO, that's just, that's just numbers. How can numbers have a bias? How can numbers have an allegiance for Christ or against him? Um, you know, WHO, we can trust them, CDC, right? The CDC, that's not CNN. Okay, sure, the, the news hosts, they can twist something in the way they present it, but let's just go straight to the source. And, and my position was, well, wait a second. First, what does the Bible say about the meaningfulness, the importance of the church and its weekly gathering on the Lord's Day? And secondly, what does the Bible teach us about um, about the hearts of men and and how you know th these num they're not just numbers that come down from from heaven uh, these are numbers that are collected who who's collecting them godless yale godless harvard got like the academia collects the numbers and then and then the news presents the numbers so you have you have the new york times and uh, godless yale working in concert do, do we trust these individuals and that's not to deny common grace and that unbelievers can be used by god in his common grace because they bear the image of god to do things that are good and true and beautiful outwardly at times um but yeah i had i had a lot of suspicions early on and uh and that was a big disagreement uh, can you unpack more of the presuppositional aspect of what you're saying? Because that's a little bit of a newer take. Uh, are you saying that these people uh, were bad at being presuppositional or were they adopting a more classical approach to apologetics that led to them being naive about, you know, the CDC 
Because I always, you know, I once I saw that the CDC and, you know, there are many reasons to not trust the CDC before this. But what did it for me was the fact that the CDC was pushing for gun control. Mm-hmm. And that's why they were banned from studying that because they were pushing for it. And that's not, you know, a disease or anything related. So that's why I was red-pilled on the CDC. But what, can you unpack the apologetics angle a little bit more? Sure. And and again, to clarify, you know, you said, like, were they, uh, just to define the they, uh, I'm going to speak, you know, primarily in regards to just the evangelical church as a whole, because the right. elders that I disagreed with are good men. Uh, we still have some disagreements, but they're good men. And I would say that uh, my most liberal elder in terms of his take on COVID, a more liberal take on that, not liberal in other regards, but my li- most liberal elder on COVID is still probably a hundred times more presuppositional than the average pastor in evangelicalism. So all that being said, um, and yet we still had disagreements, but my point is to say that the church at large, um, not being presuppositional, um, I, yeah, I think that Christians and pastors um, also, uh, sadly, uh, they, I think that they give um, they give more credence to. They, they just think that a lot of things are neutral that that actually aren't. They just they take a lot of things as though it's gospel truth, as though there's nothing to investigate. As you know, well, that you know, so and so said it, or this is this is the number that you know this is. This must be true. It's I, I think the same thing that that allowed the church to be played on critical race theory and wokeology. Um, it's it's not um, these aren't two separate issues. I think there's a common denominator to the church's response to COVID and the church's response uh, to all the race hustling that also happened. You know, with the summer of love in 2020 and riots in the right. street in the country. The Venn, the Venn diagram of people who got both wrong is a circle at this exactly. Point. Exactly. And I think all that comes down to this uh, presuppositionalism, which ultimately what I'm talking about is just basic reformed theology, Calvinism. And I understand that you can be reformed without being presuppositional. R.C. Sproul, he was, you know, he was classical in his apologetic. There's a famous debate between, you know, Sproul and Bonson from back in the day. Bonson arguing the presuppositional side, Sproul being more of a Thomist, more in the uh, in natural theology, Thomas Aquinas, you know, which is just Aristotle baptized, a little bit more philosophical. And I love Sproul, but he's a little bit more philosophical than I would like. And so all that being said, you can be reformed, you know, in many regards. Um, it's certainly in your soteriology and hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 and not be presuppositional. But I think that's a mistake. And so all that being said, you can do it. I just, I, you know, I don't think you should. So when I say presuppositional, what I'm talking about is this recognition um, of the doctrine of total depravity, uh, and that and that we are so tarnished that man has so been tarnished by sin and the curse of sin uh, that all of his faculties um, have been um, have been compromised. His reason, uh, rationale, his conscience, uh, the sense of morals, all, all these things have been. Is physical body right? It's now you know it's it's disposed towards corruption and decay and death and and so in every regard, man is a vestige of the image of God remains despite the fall of man, despite sin, uh, but because of sin, that that image of God in every respect has been tarnished by sin, and so that means that uh, that when it comes to unbelievers, uh, no matter what they do, we may think, oh well, you know, certainly an unbeliever is not going to love Jesus. Uh, an unbeliever would make for a bad theologian, an unbeliever would make for a bad pastor, you know, but uh, that doesn't mean that an unbeliever would make for a bad scientist, does it? And I would say, yeah, it does. 
It does. That doesn't mean they can never be right. That doesn't mean that the unbeliever can't uh, get certain things right uh, in science. But whenever an unbeliever uh, does something that is right, we have to recognize that he's only doing it right inconsistently. He's choosing in that moment to live inconsistently with his worldview, with his basic presupposition. So everybody has presuppositions, and that includes the Christian, for the record. You and I, we have a presupposition. We have a bias. Our bias is that Jesus is Lord, that he came in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he bodily rose from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Like that's an we have an allegiance, we have a bias, we have a presupposition. And so my whole point was to say from the beginning, are there are there motives? Are there plausible, not just possible, not just, you know, just maybe 1% fringe, you know, possible motives, but is, is there plausibility that there might be incentives in the hearts of unbelievers in the realm of academia, in the realm of medicine, in the realm of pharma, in the realm of uh, uh, politics and politicians? Uh, uh, could we see plausible motives for wanting to lock the country down. In, in 2020, an election year, with one of the most divisive polarizing presidents in American history, namely Donald Trump. Like, is that crazy? That's not crazy at all. Of course, of course. So, so let's just, let's pause for a moment before we declare that this is the bubonic plague. Let, let's just, you know, where, and if it is, where, where are, where are the guys walking down the streets, you know, in, in full body suits, ringing bells, singing, saying, bring out your dead, right? I'm, I'm not saying nobody died, but I'm just saying that this is not the plague that it was made out to be. No, and we could have seen that coming in Mar early March of 2020. That's the right. other shame of it. We had every, all the data we needed to make the correct decision. And we learned an exhaustive amount about a virus that didn't change any of that. Right. So... Yeah, next, yeah we, we found out very early on. You're right. The next uh, subject I really want to tackle is family integrated uh, worship. Now, you do this at your church. I actually attend a church where this is uh, the practice. And you have very principled reasons for it. So I'd like you to kind of unpack those. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, the first would just be that, you know, we, we don't have any. Well, I'll start with this. So being you know reformed and confessionally reformed so when i say i'm reformed i don't just mean i'm a calvinist um i think you know a lot of people they're like what's the difference between being reformed and being a calvinist um you know so i'm you know i am baptist uh, i am a you know credo baptist um but there's a dynamic difference between what i would call a calvinistic baptist john MacArthur would be an example um who i'm grateful for or being a reformed baptist a uh, reformed baptist would be someone like james white or someone like vody bacham um, the difference is, um, it's not that the, the, the Reformed guy is not a Calvinist. Uh, the Reformed guy is Calvinist plus a whole lot more, right? So you can be Calvinist, um, and usually when someone says, I'm a Calvinist, what they're referring to is, I adhere to John Calvin's views on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. I hold to the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of all saints. So that's what they mean. So John MacArthur is a Calvinistic Baptist. He is reformed in his view of soteriology. But that's, that's about it um, in terms of adopting reformed theology. Uh, for me, I am not uh, merely a Calvinistic Baptist. I am a confessionally Reformed Baptist. And so I hold to the five points of Calvinism with soteriology, but then I hold to a lot of other classical Reformed positions. I'm a Sabbatarian. John MacArthur is not a Sabbatarian. Um, he values the Lord's Day. He thinks Christians should gather on the Lord's Day, but he's not a Sabbatarian. 
Um, he doesn't believe in the Christian Sabbath, moving from the last day of the week to the first day of the week by virtue of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Um, so he he, does, he believes the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Christ is our rest. Looking at Hebrews chapter four, those kinds of things, and he would say that's enough. Um, you know, uh, also in terms of covenant theology, right? Covenant theology is that is the reformed position. If you're confessionally reformed, you're going to hold to some some version of covenant theology. So I would be, you know, hold to 1689 federalism as a reformed Baptist, um, whereas other guys would hold to a Westminster covenantalism or or federalism. Uh, but John MacArthur, again, he would be a dis dispensationalist, and in his defense, using his words, he would say, "I'm a leaky." Oh, yeah. I was going to say leaky, but yes. So all that being said, but but he's certainly not a covenant theologian. So all that being said, one classically reformed um, position getting to family integrated worship is um, holding uh, fairly strictly to the regulative principle of worship. And so part of the problem is, you know, again, we throw out the words reformed and Calvinist um, as though they're synonymous, as though they're completely interchangeable. And in most of the time they are because what we're saying is just I, I i i hold to a big view of god's sovereignty when it comes to salvation that god chooses i'm you know when people say i'm reformed they mean i hold to election i'm a calvinist i hold to election um but when i say reformed i mean classically confessionally reformed and that includes the regular principle of worship so the regular principle of worship for your listeners think um not regular uh, but think regulated Right? So the re regulative principle of worship means that God, by virtue of the scripture, regulates the worship of believers, uh, particularly in, in many respects, but particularly on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, when they gather together for worship. Um, the normative, right? So the other position would be the normative principle of worship. And the normative principle of worship uh, essentially asserts that um, as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it, it's free game. So as long as the Bible, you know, there's there's nothing in the Bible that um, explicitly forbids smoke machines, we could use a smoke machine. Laser lights, we can use laser lights. Uh, whereas the regular principle of worship, again, is not just um, we will not do that which the Bible forbids, but it's rather it's we will only do that which the Bible prescribes, which the Bible prescribes. And so I would say that what the Bible prescribes uh, is that Christians gather together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, for the administering of the ordinary means of grace, which simply put would be the public preaching of the word, the public praying of the word, the public singing of the word in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, and the public seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, of the word in the only two images prescribed for us in the scripture, which would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the ordinary means of grace that the saints are called to gather together, physically gather together on the Lord's day for their right administering. John Calvin said, wherever, you know, the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered, there a church of God exists, uh, though it swarms with many faults. And so my point is, um, I don't have a verse in the Bible that tells me to get rid of children when it comes time to worship. I'll say it again. I don't have a verse in the Bible that tells me to get rid of the children when it comes time to worship. Um, the, the idea that children wouldn't come to church, and I think that's something that people miss. They think, well, um, we're, we're just we're putting them in in another wing of the church. They're, they're coming to church too. It's just a different kind of church. It's kids' church, and it's so you know so that they can comprehend, so that it's on their level, so that they can understand that you know the sermon's going to go over their head, or that this is going to go over their head. They're not going to be able to get it. But I think we have to recognize first, and this goes into the whole branch Covidian thing. The reason why churches were okay with shutting down is one, they're not presuppositional. They don't understand the depravity of men. They entrusted themselves to men. 
The very thing Jesus, the scripture says, he did not entrust himself to men, for he knew what was in the heart of men. There were a lot of Christian pastors who did not properly discern and know what was in the heart of men. And I'm talking about CDC men. I'm talking about Joe Biden men. I'm talking about Donald Trump men, uh, for that matter. And in all those regards, they underestimated the depravity of man and the incentives that man had against the country and against Christians particularly. Um, so lack of this presuppositional understanding of anthropology. But also, like I said earlier, there's a lack of ecclesiology and understanding of the church. The reason why we shut our doors is the same reason why we are comfortable sending our kids to another room or even in some cases, a big church campus, another building, is because we don't have good ecclesiology. We don't know what church is. So it's like, hey, the whole family's going to church. We're just worshiping in different rooms, uh, each on our cognitive level. Um, well, wait a second. How does the Bible define church? What what criteria is necessary according to Scripture for for this gathering to actually be in God's purview to qualify as church? And I would argue that children's church across churches all over America, um, if you look at what the Bible says church is, and you look at what happens in children's church or children's ministry, it's not church. So essentially what you're saying is that the family is not going to go to church. Mom and dad are going to go to church, and we're going to give our children to a Christian child care, right? We, we make sure that whoever's babysitting our kids, that, you know, that they're Christians. Um, but, but yeah, we get, we get a babysitter, and we hire them by, you know, a portion of our tithe that goes to the church. We hire a babysitter to watch our kids so that we can go without them to church. And I just want to know, where's the Bible verse for that? I'm a regular principal guy. I don't see that in Scripture. Right. So one thing that I want to bring up, and I want to you know, just use my own personal observations, so not exactly scientific evidence. But when I look at the people, because you know, I grew up in the church, but here's the thing. When youth group and all that other stuff, you know, existed in the church I grew up with. But for me personally, it was auxiliary to, you know, going to worship service with my family. Yeah. So when I look back on all the other people I knew and met growing up in the church, to me, the people, it there was less of a distinction between, and even people that I know that, you know, grew up in different churches. The, there was less of a distinction between homeschooled and public school and more of a distinction between the people who worshiped on Sunday with their families and then participated in youth activities as an extra, as an, a right. benefit versus the people that only went through the system. Right. So yeah. Supplemental is totally different. So just, I'm glad you brought that up just to clarify my position. I'm not saying that a church can't host um, an event for teenagers on a Wednesday night, you know, with, with adults. I mean, you need Christian adults and parents who are present, um, who are helping to lead and chaperone that event. Um, but yeah, that's perfectly fine. What I'm talking about is the Lord's day, uh, weekly worship where the whole church is meant to come together, where the Lord's supper, um, is administered where the word is preached, where we are addressing one another with spiritual songs and hymns and psalms. I'm talking about that event, that weekly event on the Lord's Day. Um, the whole family should be there. The children should be there. So I, what I'm talking about, what, what I have a problem with is not supplemental ministries outside of the Lord's Day that are demographic-based, right? So the idea that we're going to have demographic-based ministries outside of the Lord's Day for men, uh, we're going to have a men's event once a month. 
We're going to have a women's event once a month. We're going to have something for teenagers. We're going to have this. We're going to, that's completely different. Um, and I think that, you know, you can go wrong with those two. Uh, I've seen, you know, you can go wrong with, especially with women's ministries. I've got lots of material on that, but, um, but the point is that that is not inherently wrong to have, uh, the church to host supplemental events outside of the Lord's day as ministries that are demographic based. That's fine. What I'm talking about is not supplemental. I'm talking about when we go to church on the Lord's day, um, our kids make it through the first 12 years of their life, having never seen the Lord's supper served, having never uh, sat with the pastor preaching, uh, sat through one of his sermons. Uh, that That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, except on like Christmas or Easter or something. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think, and one of the things that I said, it was in the video that I did on the Gospel Coalition's Keller Center, and they're trying to be like, oh, how do we not lose young people? And I said, well, there's two ways that we cannot lose, lose young people. And I said, the number one way we could do that is family integrated worship. That was the number one way. And then number two mm -hmm. was homeschooling. Mm -hmm. So, you yeah. know, because one is part of discipleship and the other is, you know, also it's part of discipleship, but not yeah. necessarily in the church sense, but in the family sense. Yeah, they're both discipleship. And, you know, I would be I'd be fine with homeschooling um, or sending your children to, you know, a Christian classical school would be fine. But right. definitely not public school. You can't send your kids, you know, as as Vody would say, you know, you, you can't send your kids to Caesar and be surprised when they come back as Romans. So we can't right. send kids to pagans. And that situation's only getting worse. Like I, I went to public school and I turned out just fine, but you know, it's not the way it was and it's only going to get worse from here. So I think people got to get that very clear uh, in their heads. So the next, I guess the question still on the subject of family integrated worship, because I also find myself in the situation where I'm the person with the unruly three-year-old and the one-year-old that, you know, wants to really shout sometimes. Uh, you, you brought up in, a, I believe a sermon is what I'm recalling, how you said that family integrated worship has its challenges, but it's worth it. So I, I guess my question is, um, how do you you know, what are the challenges of family integrated worship and how do you recommend dealing with them? What are the tips uh, to the, to dealing with it? Yeah. Well, I, you know, the challenges are just, you know, the, the behavior of children. And so exactly what you stated, that's certainly a challenge, uh, you know, having a one-year-old, having a three-year-old and keeping them quiet, keeping them still, those kinds of things. And so that, that is a challenge. Um, our church, you know, it varies week to week. Um, you know, but like this last Sunday uh, was uh, there's always children, you know, making noise and making sounds, you know, but but it varies. This last week was uh, exceptionally noisy Sunday. My wife told me afterwards on the way home. She was like, man, you did a good job preaching through that. The kids, you know, she was like, sometimes it's, you know, towards the end of the sermon, they start to get restless. She said, but uh, we were like three minutes in and, uh, and the kids were losing their minds. And, you know, part of that might be, you know, because we, you know, it was the first Sunday for us here in central texas coming off of a week where um everything was frozen we had a you know an ice storm and so all the kids were cooped up inside wow that might have had something to do with it but the point is um i you know the the simplest answer i could give is um sunday is game day um so the lord's day i i think is game day um that's kind of the attitude that i have you know with my family with my wife is you know i say like hey look uh, we're not doing everything that's ideal 
uh, when we gather together uh, with the saints on the Lord's Day. What we're doing is we're, we're going to do um, as much as we can without doing something sinful, but we're going to do as much as we can to make it through the day with as few uh, interruptions and those kinds of things as possible. Um, this is game day. Um, but the way to have a good game day is practice. And so uh, one of the best things that you can do that you should be doing for a whole other host of reasons, uh, but fathers leading family worship in their home. So so my kids, uh, the concept of sitting down um, as, as the word is being preached, um, that's not a concept that they only, um, that they only engage with uh, once a week. That's something that they're immersed in um, every day of the week uh, with our daily family worship. So, so the idea of uh, this is, um, we're, we're going to uh, be quiet, we're going to stay still, and uh, somebody is going to be teaching us. Um, that's, that's just not a foreign concept. That's something they're immersed in. And by doing it in the home, uh, then in the privacy of our home, it's not game day. So it's not just, hey, we're going to try to make it through our 25 minutes of family worship. Uh, no, we, we can stop our family worship. We can pause. And so if you do have the one-year-old or the three-year-old who's being misbehaving, um, then I, I stop family worship and I address it. And we'll, you know, we'll discipline if we need to discipline or verbally correct if there needs to be just a verbal correction. And so we're practicing and teaching, instructing, forming, shaping, you know, developing our kids for this spiritual discipline um, all, all week long. And so then on the Lord's Day, it's not nearly as foreign to them. Uh, we've been practicing all week long and um, yeah, so my, my first tip is do family worship and and give your kids a daily context where they can practice, where they can be taught uh, how to sit still, how to be quiet, how to be uh, how to learn, and and then uh, beyond that, um, you know, my other tip, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Sundays, you know, just for pastors and and just the church as a whole, is uh, be willing to be inconvenienced. Um, the, the, I think churches there's a learning curve. Um, if you, you know, if you have never been to a family integrated church and you start going to a family integrated church next week, uh, it's shocking at first. Even James White, you know, he said uh, he said it took him, you know, not long, but he said it took him a, at least a couple weeks uh, when he made the switch over to Apologia and became an elder there with Jeff Durbin. Their family integrated and have been for for a while. And uh, he said, you know, it was it was jarring at first. It was something he had to get used to. He said, but quickly he, he was able to get used to it and he was able to see all the pros and the pros far outweigh the cons. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And that's why I believe in the, in the premise of family integrated worship. So just to expand upon like uh, tips for the uh, worshiping in the home. I, so what exactly does that entail and uh for you know you're a pastor so i don't know if you're doing like a full sermon or a sermonette or something but what is exactly does that entail for younger kids yeah so well that's something that i'm actually working on right now um but i'm going to put together a four-part series uh, where I, you know, I'm teaching on family worship and I think I'm actually going to include in the series um, some recordings of my family, actually with my wife and with my children, myself doing family worship. Um, and so, uh, you know, to, to try to provide not just instruction, but examples uh, that other Christians can watch and learn from. And then I'm also going to be putting together a family worship guide um, in, a, in a book form that people will be able to use. Um, 
But in the meantime, there are plenty of family worship, great family worship materials and curriculum that you can get. Uh, what we do in a nutshell is um, we do basically we have family worship in the morning and then also we, we have a morning family worship and an evening family worship. So the morning family worship is where we are um, basically drilling the kids um, in terms of uh, catechism. So we, we have catechism questions um, where we use Keech's catechism and I've revised some of the questions and answers and do a little bit of my own thing, but working from the premise of Keech's catechism, that's Benjamin Keech. He was a 1689 guy. Um, and then, and then we do that in the morning um, and then we alternate morning. So one morning, uh, basically it's, it's uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is Bible verses, scripture memory. Um, and then, and then we have, uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, we do catechism questions from Keech's catechism, like I already mentioned. Um, and so that's our morning family worship. We do it five, five times a week, um, uh, Monday through Friday. And then in the evening, what we do and this, we, we usually shoot for probably twice a week. Um, you know, uh, you know, we'll shoot a little bit higher, but try to try to do it twice a week as, as a, a minimum bar. Uh, in the evenings, what we do is I actually, you know, bring out um, a pulpit and sometimes, you know, if my pulpit's not handy, you know, and if you're a dad who's not a preacher and you don't have a, a pulpit at home, uh, what I do is I just, I'll get uh, one of our stools from the kitchen and uh, and I'll stack another stool on top of it and make a makeshift makeshift uh, pul pulpit and I'll get my Bible and uh, and then I have a liturgy. Um, and every, you know, father in my church has, a, I print off a liturgy every single week so they can use a liturgy from the previous Sunday. Um, and so I have a liturgy and we just work through the liturgy. And what we do is we just, we, you know, we, it's a liturgy, um, but minus the sermon. And so, you know, it starts with a, a call to worship, you know, so I'll say, uh, all right, family church, let us now begin to worship the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Our call to worship comes to us from, and there's a text and it's usually three or four verses. I'll read the text. Um, you know, and sometimes have practice saying, all right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. You know, they'll stand up. My two-year-old stands up, my three-year-old, five-year-old. And then I'll, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. They'll say, thanks be to God. All right, please be seated. And then we just, we continue. The next thing is a reading of God's law. And so, you know, in our liturgy every week um, at church, uh, we have Exodus 20, where, you know, we go through the Ten Commandments. So I'll read the Ten Commandments, which my, my three-year-old and five-year-old, they have that memorized. And so they might even say it along with me, um, but we read through the Ten Commandments. And then when we're done reading through the uh, Ten Commandments, uh, then we do a confession of sin. And, you know, in, in the Lord's Day uh, with the whole church, it's kind of lead and response. And so the minister will, will say a line and then the congregation will say a line. Um, but for the children in, in my home, what I'll do is I'll just take a few words at a time. And I'll say, repeat after me. Um, oh, oh, great and holy father. Oh, great and holy father. We, you know, and, you know, just work through that, you know, confession of sin. Um, and then when we finish a confession of sin, there's an assurance of pardon. That's the next part in the liturgy. And so then I'll say, um, all right, um, uh, by the grace of God, through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pronounce that you are forgiven of all your sin. Um, and, you know, you might think as a Baptist, it's like, well, wait a second, you know, you've got a newborn in there. You've got a two-year-old. What do you mean you're forgiven of all your sin? Well, by the grace of God, through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I confess or I pronounce that you are forgiven of all your sin, uh, which the children who have faith, they are forgiven of all their sin. Um, and so, you know, so anyways, all the language, you know, matters. And then after that, um, I'll say, all right, first John chapter one, verse eight through nine, my children have that memorized. Uh, even my two-year-old, she can, you know, utter it a little bit. Obviously her 
pronunciation struggles, but so we'll do, we'll do first John uh, one, eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we uh, confess our sins, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then after that, I'll say, all right, uh, no longer confessing our sin, but now let us confess our faith. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven. And we'll do the Apostles' Creed. And my five-year-old and three-year-old have that memorized. The two-year-old is working on it. And so we go through you know, the Apostles' Creed, our confession of faith. And then when we're done with that, uh, all right, let's stand up and we'll sing one hymn, you know, Amazing Grace, or first four verses. You know, We'll sing that together. Uh, as soon as we're done with that, then I'll say, all right, raise up your hands in a posture of praise. We'll raise our hands. We'll sing uh, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then when we're done with that, then I pronounce a benediction. I'll say, all right, now I'm working with my two-year-old with this because she mimics my hand posture. And so this one, Dada does a different hand posture than she does. So I'll say, all right, now take your hands and put them like this, like you're receiving a gift, a blessing from the Lord. Then I'll put my hands up and read the benediction from Numbers. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Be blessed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, family church. And then we go and we get candy, <laughs> you know, and, and then we go and we do books, you know, and all that, you know, and finish our bedtime. So my point is, you know, Monday through Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's uh, Bible verses. And then um, and then, you know, and at each level they have, you know, I ask, you know, I have some for my two-year-old, uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? She knows that. Uh, she, John 10-11, um, I am the good shepherd, Matthew 28-20, 20, um, I am with you always. Um, so she's got a few verses and then, you know, the, the, my oldest, she'll have large passages like John 3, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you know, or Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Um, you know, so, you know, we have multiple verses. It's all in all, it's about 40 Bible verses that, that the, the five-year-old knows all of them. The three-year-old knows most of them, you know, and the two-year-old knows some of them. Um, and so we do that Monday, Wednesday, Friday is Bible verses and then prayer. And we do it all at the breakfast table. That's another thing that's a, a key factor. Um, it helps if we're sitting down at the table. Um, that really helps, especially with younger children. So we're doing it at the breakfast table, but all of it is in the framework for mom and dad. We're still thinking this is training. If we have to stop, we stop um, because this is, you know, we can't always stop and, uh, you, you know, and get up in the middle of, of Lord's Day worship at church, but we can at home. So this is our chance to not let things slide at home. Um, practice, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. So practice well at home so that the Lord's day goes a lot better. So that's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Bible verses, Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday is catechism questions. All that's in the morning at the breakfast table. And then a couple nights a week going through our liturgy from Sunday that I already, you know, went line by line uh, with you. And that's in the evening. And so we're doing all that with the framework of this is practice. Uh, perfect practice makes perfect. And so, yeah, family worship, it's its valuable in itself because we're catechizing the children, discipling them, washing them in the word. Uh, but it also helps immensely to prepare them for family integrated worship on Sunday. Well, I really like the ability that you have to articulate practical steps towards, uh, you know, discipling children, especially in a family integrated uh, worship. So, uh, the next topic I want to move on to is I believe you had a hot take and to me it was kind of hot because you, you said that uh, congregationalism, there's a much stronger case in the Bible for congregationalism than credo baptism. I believe you said something like that, that or that you're more convinced by congregational polity than credo baptism. And as a Baptist, I kind of have like a the opposite because I think that uh, credo baptism is actually much stronger than congregationalism, which 
I'm more or less shaky on because I do think that the Presbyterians have a pretty good argument for elder leadership in the church. So uh, I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on on yeah. that. Okay. Um, can you flesh out a little bit more what, what you mean by the Presbyterians have a good argument for elder leadership in the church? Uh, I do think that you know, obviously there's what Matthew 17, which talks about the, the body is the final say, right? Yeah. Ma Matthew 18. yeah. That would be one of the best verses to go to for congregationalism. Not probably not the only one, but right. in terms time. of if you look at the Paul's uh, writings and establishing elders for leading in the church. Uh, gotcha. I'm a, I think the credo baptism has a stronger argument in general. Okay. Things congregationalism. I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think I just got thrown off a little bit about linking the elder because it sounds like what you're describing is elder rule, which is not Presbyterian polity per se. That's um, that that would be more of your Calvinistic Baptist, um, you know, or or guys who aren't Calvinist, Southern Baptists. Or, that's not true. Uh, Southern Baptists who are more Arminian uh, tend to actually not be congregational. They're also not really elder rule. They tend to be deacon rule. <laughs> Uh, you have a board of deacons and uh, they tell the pastor what to do and the congregation too. They're, or they're committee driven, right? There's like 27 different right. in the church. And, um, so, you know, a lot of Southern Baptist polity is, is actually, as it plays out in individual Southern Baptist churches is very dismal. Um, but Presbyterian polity, you know, the, my problem with Presbyterian polity is, is not so much the elder component because uh, what you, what you're describing of elder rule um, is not really a, a Presbyterian thing. The, the, the key, you know, item with Presbyterian polity is presbyteries. Uh, so for me, you know, the struggle with that is I, I think that the highest ecclesiastical authority on earth is the local church. Um, so for me, you know, I'm going to hold to the autonomy of the local church. So a presbytery is going to be difficult for me to get around biblically. Um, the idea that there's um, that there's a higher ecclesiastical authority than uh, the autonomy of a local church, that there's a presbytery, a council, a synod um, that has ecclesiastical binding authority over multiple churches. I also struggle with that um, because, you know, there's a bifurcation of elders within Presbyterian polity that uh, you, you don't just have a pastor is a pastor is a pastor, but instead you have teaching elders and ruling elders. So you have two different kinds of pastors um, and really better put two different kinds of elders because a ruling elder usually wouldn't be referred to as a pastor. The teaching elder would be the minister or the pastor. The ruling elder would just be a ruling elder. And so within Presbyterian polity and some presbyteries, you know, would actually have a third bifurcation of three different kinds of elders. They have a, a minister, a pastor, essentially, who teaches and those kinds of things. But he also administers the sacraments. He also does a lot of the counseling, um, you know, and then they have a teaching elder that's kind of like um you know, he might be somebody who's like a seminary professor. He's like a um, like a doctor of the church or something like that who teaches, but he's not actually a minister. He's not actually a pastor. And then they have, you know, the board of ruling elders. Um, and so, so one, I struggle with Presbyterian polity because um, of its bifurcation, whether it be a twofold or a threefold, you know, bifurcation of elders. Whereas for me, um, biblically, whether it's all the words presbyter, bishop, pastor, shepherd, elder, um, they're all synonymous. Um, so that's, to me, that's the first thing that, that kind of binds me towards Baptist polity. Uh, but then the bigger thing is the idea of, um, I, I don't see any New Testament example of a council um, 
uh, that is not actually serving as officers, ordained officers in one local church, but still telling this other church that they don't belong to themselves what to do. Um, I see that at like Acts chapter 15, right? You know, the Jerusalem council. I do see that. Um, but the problem is that I only see it in the case of, of the guys who are serving on this council, giving instructions, um, you know, exercising authority over multiple churches that they don't actually belong to. Uh, yeah, sure. I see that, but they're apostles, right? I, what I don't see is I don't see non-apostolic figures who are simply um, holding the role of elder as a biblical office. They're not apostles of Christ and yet still exercising authority over other churches that they don't belong to. Lastly, the last thing that I struggle with is, again, within the Presbyterian polity, is for teaching elders, um, a minister of a Presbyterian church, they're actually, in most presbyteries, not all, the CREC with Doug Wilson and guys, they'd be different, but PCA, OPC, um, a lot of Presbyter uh, Presbyterianism, the teaching elder, the, the primary pastor of the church is not a member of his own local church that he pastors. He's a member of the presbytery. And so his membership resides there. And the church can appeal to the presbytery and all these kinds of things and say, we've got a problem with our pastor, but they, uh, the church itself um, is hard pressed to remove that pastor. They have to go above the pastor to another ecclesiastical court outside of the local church that somehow has ecclesiastical authority over that local church and a bunch of other uh, churches. And so anyway, so that, that kind of system, um, I just, I just don't see in the Bible. So the, when I say I'm okay. sold on Baptist polity, um, it's not even necessarily because I think polity is, is more important than baptism although I do think it's important, um, but I think it's clearer in Scripture than baptism. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, just to kind of break down my understanding of what you said, I did get asked for definition. So credo-baptism has to do with uh, being baptized unto belief, a profession of faith being baptism, as opposed to paedo-baptism, baptizing children of believers. And then congregationalism refers to, you know, congregation ruling of a church. And what your issue with the Presbyterian model is the Presbytery itself, the idea you see the local church as the ultimate authority on ecclesiastical issues. Yeah. But I guess my understanding of congregationalism had more to do with, in some cases, treating the church like a democracy in a sense. And, you know, since I don't see democracy as a functioning form of government anywhere else. I have a hard time seeing how that works well in the church or, and I'm open to arguments, you know, from the Presbyterian side about how maybe, you know, it's not meant to be uh, strictly congregation votes on certain matters. Cause we can see how that goes wrong. Right. A lot. Just for the record, the 1689, when it speaks about issues pertaining to polity, um, and it speaks particularly to the issues that would require a congregational vote. The language that you'll find in the 1689 is the common suffrage. So think women's suffrage, 19th Amendment, right? Suffrage not being suffering, but, you know, but that you actually, a vote. It's talking about a vote, rights to vote. Um, and so in the 1689, when it says the common suffrage, speaking about the whole church is going to vote, something that merits a congregational vote, um, the only thing that the 1689 places in that category. So just, just so you know what reform, you know, confessionally reformed Baptist polity is, when I say congregationalism, it's ordaining of officers. So you cannot ordain an elder 
or a deacon. So we would hold there's only two officers in the church. Presbyterians would agree with that as well, elders and deacons. They just would have different kinds of elders then, uh, whereas we would say, no, just one kind of elder, one kind of deacon. Um, and both are ordained ministers in the church, and both, therefore, as ordained ministers in the church, should be biblically qualified men, not just holding to male eldership, but holding to a male diaconate as well. Um, <laughs> it's, al it's almost uh, easier to have a female pastor, biblically, than, than it is to have a female deacon. The Bible is so clear uh, that, that men should be pastors, and it's just as clear, if not clearer, that uh, the deacons. Um, uh, should also be men, right? Give me seven men filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Right. I guess the only pushback on that is that the requirement for deacons in was it First Timothy three right. does mention the wives, the wife of the deacon, not being a gossip. So that, in a sense, is a qualification for the woman, right? Yeah, but, so this is which what, I think that would make that a much stronger case than. Well, this is what uh, I would say. That so some people say, well, no, that's not translated wives; it's translated women. So, so basically, you have three lists. You have a list of qualifications for elders. That's First Timothy, I believe it's chapter three, verse one through seven, and then it picks up with deacons. And so we have three lists: a, a list for elders, which should be men, then a list for male deacons, and a list for female deacons. If you translate instead of likewise their wives, you tra translate it as likewise. Uh, they're women or or women, female deacons, right? So that's the argument on the, you know, the more egalitarian, you know, feministic side. Um, now, the problem is this, they're going to say, well, you know, there's, uh, you, you know, it, if I was, you know, playing the devil's advocate, trying to, you know, be like Beth Moore for a moment, um, you know, they would say, well, of course you can have female deacons because um, this has to be, this can't be talking about deacons wives. It has to be talking about female deacons. And the reason why is because elder is a higher position than deacon in the church. And so if the Bible had qualifications for the wife of a deacon, but no qualifications for the wife of an elder, it would make it seem like the role of a deacon is more significant than the role of an elder, right? Because the role of a deacon has more qualifications in the sense that, um, that if you want to be a deacon, not only do you have to meet a certain standard, but your wife has to meet a certain standard. Uh, so the better way of reading it, you know, where's the there's no standard for elders' wives to meet, um, and so it makes it seem like deacon is, is more important than elder, and we know that can't be true. So the, the way to solve the problem is just to say it's not talking about the wife of a deacon. It's talking about here's one list of qualifications for a male deacon, another list of qualifications for female deacons, and therefore you can have a fem female diaconate. That's that's the argument. It's a bad argument on, on multiple regards, but one, uh, one reason why it's a bad argument is because the Bible doesn't affirm affirmative action. The Bible does not affirm affirmative action. Um, that these, if you're saying this is a list for female deacons, then essentially what you're saying is because it's a very different list. It's you know male deacons. So you know, just humoring that argument for a second, male deacons have to look one way. Female deacons look a completely different way. It's a completely different list of qualifications for the wife of a deacon. If you're going to read that as women deacons. Uh, than it is for males. So basically what you're trying to, what, what you have to say is it's a Matt Chandler move, right? You know, like uh, there's one bar for an Anglo elder, but there's another for, you know, uh, for a person of color elder, right? I'll tell you, you know, you got to be. Right. I, I think at most but you could use that passage to argue husband, wife, diaconate. I think that's the maximum that you could do. I don't. Yeah, just, I think that's, yeah. That's, that's the maximum case steel man that you could right. do. Right. And so the last thing I was going to say is just that uh, the reason why I think that wives get brought into the, uh, the equation with the diaconate and not eldership is because the nature of a deacon's work, the nature of a deacon's ministry, um, 
eldership is a ministry primarily if we were to sum it up into just you know one phrase it's a ministry of of the word and sacrament whereas deacons it's a ministry of mercy and the ministry of mercy that you see these seven men filled with the holy spirit who they're performing like philip like stephen in acts chapter 6 um is it the kind of ministry that that uh, just naturally the wife of that man is going to be um, is going to be working in conjunction with him, fulfilling that ministry with him in a way that the wife of an elder is not. My wife, because the, the primary uh, role of an elder is preaching, um, it's it's uh, reading and study of the Word of God and preaching and prayer. Um, my my wife is not going to, she's not helping me on my sermons. She's not writing my sermons, and she's certainly not coming into the pulpit and tag team preaching with me. Uh, but a deacon in the church, if if he's, you know, if, if he's caring for the poor in our church in practical, tangible ways um, that, you know, they're cold or they're hungry or these kind of things, there's, it's very likely that his wife is going to be, you know, helping make meals and help, you know, doing certain things along with it. So I think the reason why the wives of deacons gets a mention in First Timothy 3 where the wife of an elder doesn't is because the nature of the work and ministry given to deacons who are men um, is going to involve their wives at a level that the ministry given to elders does not. I think that's a really good explanation. So the next uh, question I have is a bit of a hotter take in uh, in more discernment circles is talking about Mark Driscoll, because I find myself in a situation where I cannot really dislike the guy. Uh, I do have a clip on standby. I don't know if we really need to play it because it's you know, longer than a minute, but the idea that, you know, he's actually taking bolder stances against many cultural issues. He never locked down his church. From what I understand, he also has some pretty based uh, Instagram videos that go out. Specifically, the one I have is where he talks about, you know, Christians don't be going to gay weddings and stuff like that. Very basic, but you don't, ex but you, you won't expect to hear that from other large mega church pastors of his theological persuasions you don't really expect that and along those lines it's like he's doing all this stuff and a lot of what he's famous for is a, a lot more masculine leaning content and then he's also palling around with Stephen Furtick so I, I can't really wrap my mind around it so and I know you've said something you've expressed a similar sentiment in the past so I, I was just curious uh, on as your thoughts on uh, someone like Mark Driscoll. Yeah. The problems that I have with Mark Driscoll, like, I, I guess I, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not saying that, yeah, I think Mark Driscoll is great. I have problems with Mark Driscoll. It's just the difference is, um, I like what I like about Mark Driscoll is what most people have problems with. Um, so, you know, like when Christianity today does you know the the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Um, yeah, well, I like I, I think like ninety percent of that podcast was wrong. Most of the things that they're saying were, were bad about Driscoll. I think um, I think God God was pleased with. I think our our virtues, not vices. Um, so you know the things that I I don't like about Mark Driscoll. I mean, honestly, you know, it goes back to the polity thing. Like, just practically, not even saying like who's right or who's wrong, whether he should have been fired, whether he's disqualified. Without even getting into that, um, it was an inevitability that Driscoll was going to get fired. Why? Um, because of his church polity. Because he was, you know, a Baptist, but 
but functioning in terms of polity as a Presbyterian. You know, this whole multi-campus church thing is like, if, if you're honest about it, you get, let's say you got 14 different campuses. What you have is 14 different churches in one presbytery. Um, and then what you end up doing is, you know, you, you, you just functionally to make it efficient because it's impossible to function with the elders, collective elders of 14 different churches that you're calling campuses, which puts you at like 47 different elders. Um, so what do you do? You will you bifurcate just like Presbyterians. Now you have you know different kinds of elders. You have ruling elders, but then you also have executive team, right? So so then Mars Hill had these three elders, Driscoll and two other guys alongside with him. That was the exact. They were basically that. That's the irony is uh, their polity was Presbyterian, and it all you know uh, made it inevitable that he would get fired because um, you know the one thing that wasn't Presbyterian is that in a Presbytery. Um, yeah, you have a bifurcation of elders, and yes, you have multiple elders from multiple individual churches sitting on a council together, making decisions and those kinds of things that have ecclesiastical binding power over those churches. However, each of those individual pastors, the one thing that they do get to do, the one thing that's not taken from, from their individual church and their authority is on the Lord's Day, they get to preach to their congregation. Uh, when you got a guy who's, who's you know, um, who's preaching in 14 churches via the internet uh, streaming and but you have elders in each of these campuses which are really individual churches so they're doing the hard work of shepherding they're they're doing the marriage counseling somebody you know uh, a family loses their kid you know and their kid dies and and they're doing the funeral and they're doing the grief counseling and they're you know they're doing all that pastoral work but then on the lord's day they get to do the announcements and after the announcements they go and sit down on the front row with their wife and kids and driscoll comes on the screen and gets to preach to the church that they've been shepherding all week long um I know that I just know it's all the full circle in our conversation, right? And trusting yourself to men, you need to know what's in the heart of men. Um, those those pastors, they can say that they're cool with it. They can say they're fine with it. They signed up for it. They agreed to it. They knew what they were getting into, but eventually that was going to break. That pastor who's doing all the pastoral work, but not getting to preach, he knows what his people need to hear on the Lord's day. He's been with them all week, but he doesn't get to preach them. Somebody else who lives miles away, you know, who pops in every once in a while, who doesn't really know what's going on. He gets to preach. Nah, you're, you're going to be bothered by that. And so um, I think like it, the analogy that comes to mind is cuckoldry. Yeah. And that's basically what you're describing is that type of jealousy. You know, that's my pulpit to preach on Sunday. Yep. That's right. That's my, that's my church. This, you know, it's ultimately Christ church, it's Christ bride, but I've been appointed by Christ as an under shepherd um, to, to make this bride ready for Christ, not for, not for Mark. You know what I mean? It's like John the Baptist, right? Like, you know, he's a friend of the bridegroom. That, that's what a pastor is. A, a pastor should be a friend of the bridegroom. You're not the bridegroom yourself. It's not your bride. It's Christ's bride. But you've been appointed by Christ as an under shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And you've been appointed like John the Baptist as a friend of the bridegroom to make the bride ready to receive the groom. Um, and so, you know, making the bride ready to receive Christ is one thing. Uh, but making the bride all week long ready to receive Mark, <laughs> you know, another dude is, uh, is that's, you know, guy, guys are not going to, eventually that's going to snap. And that's what happened. His elders turned against him. Um, Driscoll was cool for a while. And then eventually, you know, the culture started, you know, continued to ramp up and it's, you know, it's feminism and it's God hating pagan, you know, this and that. And so, and that's part, I think that's part of it with Driscoll. Part of what, you know, what ruined him is, so there were some real issues, the issues that I would have, but there were other things where like, I think he was actually faithful 
Um, but but people hated it, right? Like his stance against feminism, uh, his stance on men providing, you know, and, uh, you know, I, like I remember what, you know, I knew one of the guys who, you know, he was, he was uh, one of the main pastors in one of the big campuses in Seattle. And he ended up moving to California when things started falling apart, you know, and, and I remember talking to him about, you know, why he left and why he hates Driscoll and all those kinds of things. And he, he, he thought this was a good argument. And I just kind of sat there quiet and listened, but he said, you know, a ton of, ton of families and ton of guys hate Driscoll. And I said, why, you know, like, is it because, um, you know, is it because he's like embezzling and stealing money? Is it because of this? And he's like, no, it's, um, it's because, you know, he, he keeps telling all the men that they should be able to work um, and, and be able to produce a salary, uh, to where their wives can stay home, um, and homeschool the kids and, and that they should be able to, uh, function as a single income family. And I was like, yes, you know, like, and, and, and right. And so, well, and so, and that is hard to do. I am sympathetic. I understand it's very hard to do. And it's hard to do because of feminism. Feminism has affected everything in our culture, including our economy. Um, it is very hard to function, right? Nobody loves feminism more than CEOs, um, right? Because you can pay an employee, you can play, pay that man half of what he's worth, half of what he would have gotten paid back in 1950s um, because, because he's going to come and say, well, hey, my wife and I, we just had our fifth kid. I feel like I've been doing really good work and, um, you know, I, could I maybe get a raise? And, and the employer, he may not say it out loud, but what he's thinking is this, what on earth makes you so entitled to think that you should be able to function as a single income family? Get your wife in the workforce, send your kids off to the state like everybody else, right? And, and, you know, and then get your wife in the work. So I'm, I'm not saying it's not hard uh, to function as a single income home, but, but Driscoll was big on that. And some guys got really upset. Now, again, here's part of the problem. Uh, if Driscoll had lived in Oklahoma and Mars Hill was in Oklahoma and he was, you know what I mean? Or in Kansas or in Texas or, you know, in flyover country. Um, and he was saying, you know what, we, we want single income families. And, and that means men are going to have to work hard. It also means that for some of you, you're going to have to be content to live off on less, you know, maybe you have one car as a family instead of two. And maybe, you know, you don't have a three car garage and blah, 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 blah. Um, but here's the deal. Driscoll was doing this in Seattle. So when, when your mantra is, uh, we're against feminism. Yes. And amen. Uh, wherefore fathers working out of the home as sole providers so that children, so that Titus two women keepers at home, working at home uh, so that women can be at home with the children. And we're also, we're not going to use state schools. That means a wife's not going to work. She's going to be homeschooling the kids, or you're going to pay even extra money to send them to a Christian school. And you're going to also tithe to the church. And all these are good things. Uh, but here's, here's the straw that breaks the camel's back. You, you say, and you're going to do all that in Seattle, dude, you're in the wrong Driscoll was in the wrong place. If Driscoll had been in Plano, like Chandler, I honestly believe, I think one of the big reasons why Driscoll got, got ousted in Chandler Dennett, uh, Driscoll is not a worse guy than Chandler. He's and not. he doesn't, you know, I was a pastor in X29. There's I, a lot of mega church pastors that have the multi-campus model that, you know, cut their other right. regional pastors, Andy Stanley, who's come up a lot recently. Totally. So, so my point is like, I, I know some of the behind the scenes thing with, with both, you know, what happened with Driscoll and some of the things recently that have happened with Chandler. And I'll just say this, my take, and I'm not omniscient and I could be wrong, but my take is that, um, Driscoll is not worse than Chandler. I think one of the big differences between Driscoll and Chandler is that Driscoll was in Seattle. I, I really think that that's part of it. I think, a, I, I think, and 
and Chandler's in Plano. So, so the, the message of men working hard to provide and all those kind, kind of things, well, Chandler's in a place where they, they can actually pull it off. Uh, Driscoll's in a place where, where you're exasper it's a father exasperating his, his spiritual sons. It's telling them to do something that's impossible because what Driscoll really should have said is uh, you should do all these things. And then practically the no duh obvious conclusion is you should leave Mars Hill and leave this godless city and move to, to God's country over in Texas where you actually can provide for a family, you know? So, but you, you can't have both. You can't, you can't be in Seattle and hate feminism and tell men they, they should be, you know, uh, sole providers and have a Presbyterian, pol a Presbyterian polity where you're empowering all these guys whose pulpits you're stealing week after week on the Lord's day, but they actually have authority to fire you and call yourself Presbyterian in polity, but actually be about, you can't do all of that and think that you're not going to lose your job. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit of a house of cards. And, you know, he was kind of, I, I think, you know, in some ways, the sermon ministries have overstepped on uh, Mark Driscoll on, you know, you know we yeah, use him as a punching bag when, you know, obviously we, we don't know all the sides of the story. And as you articulated, you know, he's preaching pretty unpopular things in a very liberal part of the country. So there's a lot of factors to consider. And the fact is, you know, compared to a lot of other people we could go after, there's a lot more positive things that come out of him than yeah. no, there's a ton of yeah, Driscoll than a lot of these people. So I'm not fully God, convinced that God he's a false teacher that a lot of other discernment ministers. No, I don't do. think he's a false teacher. And I don't even know guys. Well, I guess some guys, you know, but no, Driscoll is certainly not a false teacher. Um, the question just is, uh, uh, did, well, the question is twofold. Is he currently meeting the standards, the qualifications in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for, for elders for that office? And, and then the other question, you know, and that and that question, the, the answer may be yes. I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't, I haven't kept up with Driscoll. So he could currently be meeting those qualifications. I don't know. Um, the, the bigger question is at the time, you know, was Mars Hill right to fire him? Was he meeting those qualifications then? Um, and, and that one, I, you know, the things that I would struggle with, right? So I said, I'm not bothered by him, you know, decrying feminism and I'm not bothered by him saying single income homes. I just think he shouldn't, you know, he should have picked a better city to where that's actually possible. Um, and you know, his, his church polity was unbiblical, but everybody, you know, is, is, most people have bad unbiblical church polity. That's why it right. closed during COVID. Yeah, every church. Right. I don't think polity is a standard to say that someone's a false teacher. Totally. Yeah. I mean, well, every church that closed for for over four months with COVID, that's bad polity. So they should all step down. Right. You know what I mean? Like if we're going to hold the standard, which I, you know, I, I'd actually be fine with that. But the point is the things that I have a problem with Driscoll would, would be, you know, I've just heard so many stories. It's one thing when you hear a few stories and even with a church that had 14,000 people at one point, you know, you're going to hear hundreds of stories, but I've heard so many stories from, from people that I would deem as credible about, you know, in pastoral counseling him, you know, yelling, screaming, cursing, um, th those kinds of, th those are the things that make it difficult. Uh, even the whole money issue with books, $200,000 of the church's budget being spent on his real marriage book, even that, like, I understand that, that, that that's not the most ethical practice. Um, but, but Mark, Mark didn't, it's not like Mark was just able to single-handedly with somebody approved that decision. He didn't just do it in the middle of the night. Uh, right. Accounting 101 is the person who spends the money is not the keeper of the cash.
Right. Yeah. So the person counting the money doesn't keep the money. Like right. Counting one one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So he didn't he didn't sneak into the churches, you know, in the middle of the night, their bank account and steal two hundred thousand dollars. That was a decision that was approved. And and just for a second, you know, iron manning instead of straw manning, iron manning the you know, that position in their mind, it was and it wasn't just Mark's idea. But in their mind, the thought was, if we spend two hundred thousand dollars, number one, we're going to buy all these books and we're not going to buy them so that Mark can be rich. We're going to buy them and we're going to give them as a resource uh, to people in the church. Right, we're going to buy twenty thousand copies of this book, and and give a free book to you know all these different people in the church and other ministries and stuff like that. So we'll give away free books. So it's in that sense, it's a charity. And number two, if we buy them at full price, because we could have bought them at, at bulk, um, you know, or at cost, um, if it's just as a gift. Uh, but we're going to buy them at full price so that it tricks the system. And this is where there's questions of ethics and so. But tricks the the system to make it look like there's this many sales. But that'll put him on this New York Times best. It'll put him in this bracket of of high sales, which means more people will buy the book. And what's the book about? It's about having a godly marriage. And wouldn't people be? So my point is, I I I don't think that was right because because. I think you need to make actually make that bracket. You 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 don't need to. We don't need guys. Cheap. You don't need to. You don't need to daily wire yourself to get there and right. pay for you know the equivalent right. of you know pre roll ads. Right. Right. Exactly. Videos. So if, if you have a best selling book, it, it should be on the merit of actually being a really great author and writing a really great book. So, but the point is, so I I don't agree with that standard. But again giving you know the benefit of the doubt and like well it's gonna it's it'll make the book more known more people will get it more people will have godly marriages because of it and the books that we're buying will give as gifts and all these kinds of things it's not about making mark uh, rich it's also not just about making him a celebrity it's about getting this message in as many hands as possible being innocent as does but shrewd as vipers my point is like i don't think that was right um but i can see how you get there and i don't think that that in and of itself is disqualifying for eldership I don't think that you can point to that and say, and therefore that's what disqualified him. Um, That's a business ethically questionable move, but it's not a sin issue in and of itself. Well, it could could be a root of a root caused by a sin issue, but yeah, that in and of itself isn't the sin. It'd be something behind that, that I think would be the sin. And my point is it may have been sinful, but elder sin. The question is, is it a disqualifying sin? Is it a reproach? Elders sin all the time. Uh, the question is, there, you know, the, the standard is not for an elder that he must be sinless. Uh, the standard is he must be qualified. And so, so there, elders sin. The question is, but did you sin in a disqualifying manner? And I don't think that that was a disqualifying sin. So I don't think that was disqualifying, and I don't think his polity was disqualifying. I think it was bad and unbiblical, you know. But I don't think that's disqualifying. Um, I, the only thing that may be disqualifying, but again, it's hearsay, but it's a lot of hearsay from hundreds of people. And some of them really credible is behind the scenes, uh, just, just being a jerk and, and not just a jerk because, you know, some feminist, you know, ha- had their feelings hurt, but no, like by any standard, like truly a, a, a full grade jerk, you know, that like right. cursing at people in counseling sessions, you know, that, a jerk like that. Right. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if that's true, then yeah, I think he was disqualified. That still doesn't answer the question about whether or not he's qualified now. I don't know. Right. And he's definitely, like you said, he's definitely taken a much better stand against wokeness and COVID and, and civil tyranny and forced jabs and feminism and all. He's definitely taken a better stand on those issues than than most of the pastors who say that, you know, he's the worst guy in the world. And I'm not going to, whatever decision I'm going to make about Driscoll, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that decision. I'll tell you this. 
I'm not going to make my mind up about Mark Driscoll from Christianity Today and Russell Moore and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And like, that's no, no, thank you. That's, right. that's silly. Uh, so, so the next question I have is somewhat similar, but the idea of working with charismatics, because, you know, our theological camp, just put bluntly, is not the largest theological camp, but I don't think that people who are charismatic are all of a sudden outside of the faith. Uh, and when you look at the numbers, uh, a lot of younger evangelicals skew charismatic because I don't know a lot of, I don't know why, but if you look at a lot of the more reformed uh even more orthodox churches and some not so orthodox churches, their congregations are skewing heavily older. So I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on like outreaching to uh, beyond your theological camp, but obviously without compromising your own theological principles. I kind of wanted your take on doing that because there's a larger audience out there. Uh, when you look at the enemies within the church documentary, if you're familiar with that, yeah, Judd, Judd is a friend. Yes, yeah. uh, that minister or that documentary apparently did really well with charismatics, you know, like Kerry Gordon, but it did not get a whole lot of love from Southern Baptists who were a primary focal point in that documentary. So I, I think in terms of wanting a cultural impact, we have to reach that audience, but we have to reach that audience to me without compromising. So that's just you know, I don't want to be sound pragmatic, but it's just, you know, it's, you're trying to disciple people in a way. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Can Real quick, can, can I address some of the, uh, I just keep seeing these things in the chat. It's really interesting. Okay. Am I able to address some of those real quick? Uh, sure. Uh, do you have a so, chat you want me to pull? Well, just like, I, I, I can read it, but just like TD said, read MacArthur's book on charismatic. So strange fire. Like, so just so TD knows, uh, been there, done that, bought the book. I bought the t-shirt, you know? And so, um, and yeah, MacArthur does a great job. So I, I've read it and that, that influences the decision I'll make. Uh, Berean babes, Driscoll refused church discipline. Um, see, that's what I would push back. Um, and I think I know who that is. Um, and I appreciate you. you. I think they comment on our channel and have some really insightful things. So Berean babes, if you're who I'm thinking about, then I'm a fan. So, so good work. So I charitably, charitably disagreeing with you, but Driscoll refused church discipline. Um, they, they made a plan of restoration for Driscoll. That's true. And he did refuse it. Um, but he, he said, nah, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to resign. And his resignation was accepted. And I think it, you know, accuracy matters. Um, Mars, the, the elders of Mars Hill did not formally put Driscoll under church discipline saying, um, you are, uh, you know, we're, we're firing you. Um, because see that the record matters. Um, technically Driscoll resigned. Technically he, he wasn't fired. Uh, his elders sat him down and said, we don't think that you're upholding these standards in first Timothy three and Titus one and these kinds of things. And I think some of the elders had biased opinions that weren't really scriptural. And then some of them probably were scriptural and Driscoll had things that were called a problem that actually were faithful to God and things that maybe actually were a problem. All the things I discussed earlier, but here's the point. The point is, Driscoll was brought in by the elders and said, if you want to continue, if you want to keep your job and continue here at Mars Hill, um, you have to submit yourself to this plan of restoration that we've laid out. And it was like two years or something like that. This, you know, this, this process of restoration. And Driscoll said, nah, 
you know, and I, I don't think he said on the spot, but he thought about it. And he got back, you know, and said, no, I, th I think I'd rather just resign. And the elders accepted his resignation. And the church was not congregational. They're, they were an elder rule church, technically kind of Presbyterian because you have multiple campuses that are really multiple churches. But the elders accepted his, his resignation. He was not excommunicated. He was not uh, formally put underneath church discipline. He was presented a plan. And, that's, and maybe they should have, but they didn't. So to say, so my point is to say that like Driscoll, uh, Driscoll was fired by his church and Driscoll, uh, no, a bunch of elders on the back end after accepting his resignation, after they accepted his resignation, that's, let the record state that, that's the official record. After they chose, those elders chose to accept his res resignation on the back end, then a bunch of elders, you know, talked about how, well, we don't think he should be a ministry and we don't think this and we don't like him and we don't, you know, we think he's disqualified, uh, but the record still states that they came to him and said, hey, look, if you want to continue, we're not firing you. But if you want to continue, you got to submit to this plan of restoration. Driscoll says, nah, I don't don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to resign. They say, OK, you can resign. That's the record. So anyways, I just I just wanted to address that one. OK, so uh, I guess back to the question about working, you know, obviously strange fire uh, just came up, but working with uh, charismatics just because they have a very large audience. Uh, in some some denominations i would say are completely a mission field like episcopalians like I, I wouldn't really consider any of them christian but you know just based on you know you go to an episcopalian church uh but charismatics i think there's a lot more gray area in that and uh, you know there are plenty of believers that are in those circles you know carrie gordon who i just mentioned i think would you know is definitely a believer uh wouldn't question his faith whatsoever but in any case, they have a much large, they have, yeah, that's probably the largest growing uh, evangelical movement in the United States uh, and globally as well. So obviously we have to work with them in some capacities, but to what extent? Is this just like the Catholics when it comes to, you know, the life issue or uh, how would you kind of uh, tackle this issue? Yeah. Okay, well, in, in terms of how ecumenical we can be and how much we can partner and link arms, um, I think you can link arms, um, you know, you, you can go as far as you can go. Meaning, like, um, do we hold the same position on, what, what issue is it that we're going to fight together on? Do we agree on that issue? Um then yeah then okay we disagree on other issues but if we agree on this issue then we can work together on this issue um now I, there's disclaimers to an extent so so for one like catholics and charismatics right that i mean that's been like every every reformed conference for the last 20 years is basically like um you know we have you know we have four speakers in four sessions the first one is uh, catholics are bad the next one is charismatics are bad now the next one is catholics are still bad and the next one is charismatics are still bad and you know and so i've gone to that conference you've gone to that conference that's the only yeah i don't go to conferences I'm oh, like, okay. I, I grew up on the outside of big eva so when i start reporting on big eva it's like okay these names kind of mean nothing to me uh except until one does I'm like wow that yeah. that news story uh didn't feel good to cover, but, but yep. uh, you can go on. I, I've been to like one conference type event or retreat. Yeah. So anyway, so all, yeah, all that being said that, you know, charismatics and, and Catholics, one big difference. So for one, there's, there's, we have to understand there's a very wide, there's a sliding scale for charismatics. 
right? Are we talking Wayne Grudem? Um, are we talking Sam Storms? Are we talking John Piper? Are we talking Matt Chandler? Are we talking, you know, um, or are we talking Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, right? Like there's you Bill know, Johnson, Bill Johnson, right? Like, so there's, so for one, there's a really, so that's the first thing with charismatics that I would say is different than Catholicism is, uh, there's, there's a large sliding scale. Secondly, um, for charismatics who aren't, um, you know, word of faith, which is a heresy, prosperity gospel, word of faith, name it and claim it. Um, for the the charismatics who, you know, like third wave, you know, is the phrase that, you know, has been coined. Grudem's, you know, done that. And, and, you know, Piper's done that. But third wave continuationism. For the third wave continuationist guys, like Sam Storms, um, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that Sam Storms is not a brother in Christ. I, you know, all signs point to the fact that he is. Uh, John Piper, um, you know, I, I have more problems with John Piper than Sam Storms, particularly on, uh, well, on a few different issues. So, John Piper's pretty woke. Yeah, yeah. Well, on his cultural and political issues, for sure. Also, some final justification kind of stuff that he said in the past. It gets uncomfortable for me. Um, but the point is, all that being said, um, you know, John Piper, uh, same kind of thing. So Sam Storms, like John Piper, I think is wrong about some things, but I'm not ready to say that John Piper is not a Christian. Um, right. Even I, I think I said, you know, he, I have the highest warning I can give for John Piper without saying he's a false teacher. That's where I left that off. Right. Whereas, you know, like Benny, uh, Benny Hinn, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, Benny Hinn is, uh, he's going to hell. Like as of now, if he died right now, um, Benny Hinn is not a Christian. He is not a Christian. Kenneth Copeland is not a Christian. Um, you know, so, so anyway, so first it's, it's complicated because charismatics, there's a sliding scale Two, uh, with Catholicism, we're talking about uh, a denial of the gospel. The Council of Trent anathematized, it cursed the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's still in the books. It's never been overturned. That is the official position of the Catholic Church. If anyone says that we're saved by grace alone um, and that it's not a collaboration of faith with works, right, uh, earning salvation, if anybody says that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, um, in Christ alone, uh, let that person be anathematized. Let that person be cursed. That's the Roman Catholic position. So when it comes to Catholics, we're talking about partnering with someone um, who hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, a lot of Catholics don't uh, because there's a difference between Catholics and Catholicism. And what I know about Catholics is um, I have come to find more and more and more that uh, most Catholics are bad Catholics. And bad they don't people, know what their church teaches. That's right. And bad Catholics are great because bad Catholics often make for good Christians. Now, the problem is good Catholics are not Christian. If you're a good Catholic, and when I say good Catholic, what I'm saying is you actually adhere to Roman Catholicism. You know what Catholic teaching is, and you believe Catholic. If you're a good Catholic, you can't be a Christian. If you're a good Catholic, you're not a Christian. If you're a bad Catholic, you might be a Christian. And most Catholics are bad Catholics, not good Catholics. Therefore, <laughs> you could partner probably with a lot of Catholics because if you really press them and say, this is the gospel, they'll say, yeah, I believe that. And if you question them and try, they're like, no, I don't believe that. And it's like, well, okay, friend, you're not you're not a Catholic. And like, I guess I'm not a Catholic. But So do you think that some people choose to be Catholic because they fetishize tradition? Um, Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's just cultural. You're just born a Catholic. Yeah, or you're born into it, or you see some, you know, young people. I'm not, you know, Cameron Bertuzzi, for instance, but I'm not sure how solid he was in the first place if he's interviewing William Lane Craig on the reg. Uh, but, you know, you look at someone like that, that, you know, through private interpretation came to, you know, Catholicism, which I think is just a self-own, but nonetheless. Uh, yeah. yeah. Or a lot of the people that go to Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, I think. Right really fetishized tradition. So I think there are those people that, you know, might have the gospel, but they're really fetishizing uh, certain aspects of church history and tradition. Whereas. Well, yeah. They just want something stable. I think otherwise lot, with Eastern you know, Orthodoxy, it's like you, I know a lot of guys who they they've left Protestant reform doctrine and gone to Eastern Orthodoxy. They're wrong. They're wrong to do that, but they've done it because of like what you're saying tradition, but really what they're seeking for there is stability and they've done it. Um, because they want masculinity, because so much of Protestants and even Reformed Protestants are effeminate, and they walk into an EO church, and here's a dude with a chain cross around his neck and a big beard, and uh, he's lifting weights Monday through Saturday, and he's not effeminate. Yeah. So I think that's a, it, you know, people move across doctrinal lines. And if someone says that they're Catholic, that tells me nothing about what their worldview actually is, because they could be anywhere from, you know, Clarence Thomas is Catholic, but so is Nancy Pelosi. It, it means nothing if you say that they're Catholic on it on itself. Mm -hmm. So right. it, it's one of those things. And then, you know, or Matt Walsh is Catholic, but Matt right. Walsh actively says that, you know, there are, you can love your way into heaven. Like he said that in an interview, so I don't think he's a Christian whatsoever uh, for that reason. Heard that. Uh, Ali Beth Stucky interview he did years ago where he basically said something along the lines that a mother can love her child in such a way or give her life up for her child in such a way that that love would be uh, – it could only have happened if they were saved regardless of whether or not they had a profession of Christ. He said something like that. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, I'd have to check it out. Um, but yeah, so to, to answer the main question, I think, you know, with charismatics, can we part with care? It depends who it is. You know, it depends who right. it is. I, I have some friends who are, you know, I have, I have continuationists in my church. So we're yeah. partnering together in our local church. I uh, would probably be around the Wayne Grudem position. Although I might say, hey, technically, if you believe that some spiritual gifts stop, then you are a cessationist. You're just a leaky or a partial cessationist. I don't know. Yeah, well, that I mean, the cessationist position is some. There, there is no such thing as a cessationist who believes all the gifts of the Spirit have stopped. Nobody, right. Nobody believes gifts of helps, gifts of teaching, gifts of administration. Right. Like nobody believes that that's stopped. Or yeah, and there's I, no more apostles. Does that right. make you a cessationist? Right. Well, then, yeah, that would be one of the cessationist arguments is saying like, well, everybody believe you know everybody believes that something has ceased namely apostles of christ and the only people who don't believe that are crazy <laughs> yeah it's kind of like atonement like how limited is it like right. you know even the uh, arminians believe that there's a limit to atonement because right. you know jesus didn't die for demons right and you know that not everyone's going to heaven so there is a limit right what right. is the limit so uh my brother uh wanted me to ask this question because he said that you made a comment about uh, Dave Green of Hobby Lobby giving away his wealth, and uh, you, I guess you didn't like that decision of yeah, his. Uh, obviously, we have a lot, you know, 
where he is giving away his wealth is the he gets us campaign. So, you know, just like Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby isn't exactly the Christian company that we think they are. Uh, yeah. So what what do you think that the alternative to uh, Dave Green's giving away all his, you know, what, $14.5 billion, I believe, was the dollar amount that we had his net worth at? What do you think about that? I think it's wicked. I think God hates it. Yeah, the Bible says to leave an inheritance to your children's children. Uh, any man who, Jackie Chan, uh, recently I saw that posted that Jackie Chan is going to give all, you know, he's only going to give his son, like, I think either nothing or a very small amount of money. He's going to give the rest to charity. Um, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an anti-biblical position. God hates it. It's sin. Fathers are commanded to store up an inheritance. They leave everything they have to their children and their children's children. Um, and that's, yeah. That's what you do. That's what God commands. Um, because it's not just, you know, I think part of the reason, you know, that that's such a novel idea. So we've never had that in like human history. We've never had that um, until pretty much boomers, baby boomers. I mean, that's the first generation, you know, that like, like would advertise, you know, publicly advertise shamelessly, you know, drive around with a bumper sticker on the back of their car that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. Which might as well—I mean, you might as well put on your car a target, you know, on on the hood of your car that says, you know, uh, "God send lightning here," you know, like strike me dead, you know, like you're angering God. It's a wicked position um, because it's antithetical to God's commandments. Um, you know, all throughout the Scripture, we see, you know, it is not right for the children to store up for the parents, but the parents to store up for the children. Now, there is a sense in which, you know, older children, as their parents are aging, are called to give some return to their parents. That's First Timothy 5, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But the basic uh, premise that the Scripture shows is that, that parents are spending themselves for their children. Uh, they're giving everything to their children. So I think part of, like, like right right now, you know, you know, people give millennials a hard time, you know, and it's like, uh, oh, well, they're lazy and that, you know, they just want to be, you know, a social media star, you know, they don't want to actually work. They don't have work ethic, you know, and all these kind of, like statistically, economically speaking, um, I, I, they're screwed or we're screwed. I'm a millennial. I think you are as well on the late end. Yeah. I'm an or I, you're on the early end. I'm on the late end. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, no, it's, if you look at what, uh, what our parents' generation on average, what they were making in terms of real, what, what the money actually, not the dollar sign, um, uh, but how far that money could go, what, like what real wage, buy, real wage. Um, I think it was 30% higher, uh, than what millennials make today. And they um, could buy a house, a they car. Could buy a house. Yep. Uh, you look at the Simpsons, which first aired in like 1989, 1990, where they have two cars and a house on a single income family that was normative just you know 30 plus years ago yep. that was normative gotcha yep and now it's two cars cohabitating mm -hmm. maybe there's baby mama drama and we are renting mm -hmm. and i'm like i'm one of those rare millennials that owns a house under 30 uh and you know, even for where I live, you know, you had to really go cheap without, uh, despite the fact that it's a pretty decent neighborhood, but uh, not a whole lot of space with that. It was actually built in the 50s, so a 50s house. So, you know, I, you know, one of the people that, you know, fought in World War II could have come back and 
bought this house or whatever. So it it's a much different economic time and it is a frustration because uh, the jobs, you know, we were sold lies about college yeah, and that was, you know, we were groomed to go, you know, high schools, and and element, even in elementary school, you were taught that if you didn't go to college, you'd be a failure in life. That that was taught in elementary school. And then yeah. it turns out, you know, you're just being sold a debt filled life. Yeah. So, And a lot of our parents, you know, they didn't know that they didn't know that college was going to pan out so poorly. They thought, you know. Yeah. But in, anyways, but yeah, you're you're right. So, you know, we're in a way worse economic position. Um, but my point is like, so we're in a bad position economically because of a number of decisions that have been made, bad decisions, um, you know, just expanding of government, expanding of welfare, you know, social security, um, all, all these different things, you know, there's all these different taxes and all these different policies, um, economic policies that have wrecked the economy and, and not just this didn't just happen 30 years ago. This has been happening for a long time. Lyndon B. Johnson, before that, like, so all these different things have just been setting the stage um, and making it worse and worse with each progressing generation, um, making it harder and harder economically. However, one thing that makes it even harder, um, or, or I should say one thing that in a really difficult economic climate that could, that could kind of ease the challenge is if, um, if we gave to uh, the next generation within our family wealth. Um, if we recognize like, hey, it's going to be way harder for my kids uh, economically than it was for us. So I'm not just going to try to work to, to get by, but I'm going to I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to work extra hours and I'm going to invest my money and I'm going to yeah. try to buy a second property at this, you know, all these kinds of things so that my so that my children um, have a fighting chance and, and not just I'm going to give it to. That's another thing is when wealth is transferred. Right. So if you if you transfer 50 grand to your kids once you die. Right. Well, your kids, you know, by the time you die, your kids are in their 40s or in their 50s. 50 grand when you're, you know, 50 years old is not that much money. Uh, 50 grand when you're 30 years old is a There's ton a money. of money that can change your life and that can have generational effects. And so uh, which is part of the reason why I think Proverbs says that a good man, uh, he doesn't just leave an inheritance to his children, but his children's children. Um, and the way that God has designed the world and just the way that, that families work and generations work. Um, if grandparents actually um, uh, worked and, and were shrewd with their money and good stewards and all these things uh, and, and, and set themselves up financially um, in a position to where they could give an inheritance to their children when they die, but also their grandchildren, not just their children, but their grandchildren, uh, then people in their, in their twenties and thirties, uh, when they're starting out life could uh, could get something. Now it'd be it'd be smaller. Maybe it's fifteen thousand dollars or maybe it's thirty thousand dollars, but maybe it's enough, you know, to be able to uh, to do you know, wouldn't be a twenty percent down payment, but maybe you can do a five percent uh, you know down payment and at least get into uh, the housing market, you know, and get and get your your piece on the board of economic life and those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people can afford a 20% down payment. You're better off going with the 5% down or however little you can get down, that way you can actually get into the real estate market. But that, yeah. that's that's at least one of the economic things that's kind of working in our favor because it's a market correction for how bad things have gotten. Uh, and then we also use a state program to buy this house that uh, forgives college debt. Uh, my wife had some college student loans. So 
you know, Maryland has this thing where you can, uh, if you're a first time home buyer, you can amortize college debt over five years. So we have to stay here for five years. That's why mm -hmm. I'm not uh, exiting the state at the moment, mm -hmm. but uh, it allowed us to get that. And we had like down payment assistance or whatever. So uh, yeah, we, we just had to take advantage of that stuff, but yeah. So, but what you're hitting on is something that, you know, I've been stressing out a lot lately is money. How do I invest now for, uh, you know, how do I become a millionaire by the time I'm 40 type of st mentality? Cause I know real estate is seemingly the most, I don't want to say popular path, but it's certainly the, one of the most recognizable path of buying rental properties and stuff like that, investing in that, or, uh, I don't, there's other alternatives, but these are things that, uh, stress me out because this economy is not getting any better uh inflate your wage keeping up with inflation is you know pretty dubious process unless you're changing jobs more frequently mm -hmm. uh so a lot of stuff uh that i keep in mind and the there's something else i wanted to talk about i think it was a question so uh yeah, Scott asked about wealthy Christians should be paying for the reconquista of the coastal bug hives, not Super Bowl ads. And, you know, in reference to the He Gets Us campaign. But in addition to He Gets Us campaign, I just I am frustrated with how little dollars seem to be working for the kingdom uh, in this day and age. Because when you look at the most funded Christian projects... You, you got like the He Gets His campaign, which is funded through a DAF uh, called Signatory, which, you know, a lot of rich Christians are involved in. And then you got The Chosen, which is our big cultural uh, achievement of making a biblically unfaithful adaptation of Jesus through the perspective of the uh 12 disciples of which there's not 12 and mary is the leader of them i think maybe they got the 12th disciple in the third season but uh and then the north american mission board as one of the chief church planting outlets so it's like there are not a whole lot of dollars working for the kingdom here and mm -hmm. i think that's a frustration that i have and i think you know if our money's not going to inheritance it should be building something Hopefully something that's lasting and can be passed down, of course. Well, and right. when I say inheritance, it doesn't just have to be writing a check to your right. kids and your grandkids. Uh, it, you know, better yet, like leave them a business, leave them a trade, leave them. And when we say building the kingdom, it, the solution is not just to replace NAM with a faithful church planting organization. Um, it does need to be replaced. NAM uh, sucks for sure. But, uh, but it's not just like, oh, and here's another church planting. What, Building the kingdom, a, a big part of that is individual Christian families um, building their family, uh, buy land, buy houses, uh, start businesses, start schools, um, be involved in the arts, be involved in culture, be involved in science and medicine and innovation, like building the kingdom. One, one thing we need is we need a bunch of Christians um, to be able to, to make some kind of AI that's not woke. Yeah, Andrew Torba has spoken at length about that, and I completely agree. If you want to unseat Google as a search engine, that is what you have to do. You have to build an AI that can do the searching for you because that what, you know, technology what, will do that. What kind of impact is that going to have on, on millions and millions and millions of people? Think about how many people are going to be deceived 
because they just think, oh, this is just true. You know, again, it goes back to the presuppositional thing of just thinking, oh, this is neutral. No, it's not. It's not neutral. Uh, th this is, it doesn't think it's not conscious. It's not sentient. Uh, this is just searching and predicting, searching and predicting with, with guidelines imputed into its hardwiring system, a blueprint, moral blueprint. And who does that moral blueprint come from? By what standard? Well, it's a standard that comes from, from pagans who hate God, who don't believe in creation, who don't believe. So, yeah, so we always think, you know, build the kingdom, and we think, yeah, Super Bowl ad that says Jesus loves you, text he gets us to, well, you know, like, um, no, what, like, part of the reason we're in the mess that we're in is because we we forfeited, uh, evangelicals forfeited every major institution, and we did it in part all in the name of global missions, and so in the name of saving, the, and we did that in part because, right. we, you know, if we can tell every tribe, tongue, and nation, that'll speed up Christ's return, and everything's just going to get worse until he comes back anyways, and so let's just let's just make Jesus come back as soon as possible, and the only thing that we can do to control that is make sure the gospel gets out to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and so we're going to, you know, give everything that we have extra. Instead of building, we're going to go ahead and give it to overseas missions, and, and yeah, if that means we have to put our kids in public schools so that we can, you know, kind of have a little extra income for generosity and blah 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 and and that's what we've been doing for decades and it is not now in america's defense because this is kind of an american thing to send missionaries out you know sending missionaries out really began with you know trying to uh evangelize the native population so we've developed a culture of just sending missionaries out and surely enough as we kept going west uh and then we went out to China with Lottie Moon, who's not exactly the Christian role model that the Southern Baptists want to make her. But, you know, we just kind of kept going out west and west and west all the way to China and then, you know, now to Africa again and stuff like that. So that was kind of in the Christianity's heritage in America. But I recently, not recently, but it was maybe a few months ago, I saw an article on Christianity Today or Compromise Today, as I like to call it, which talked about you know, what can unify a church? Global missions. Well, because you're just sending money all the way over yonder and it's out of sight, out of mind. And you say that you have this focus on something that's not tangibly in front of you because you don't want to address the issues impacting your own communities and speak to the issues thereof. So I, I definitely see where you're getting at that, you know, overseas missions, is a great idea and you know we have great history at that but at the moment it's you know first of all we need the missionaries here now yeah. because of how post-christian we're becoming and and then secondly it's kind of being used as a distraction uh from what a lot of churches could be doing to have a greater kingdom impact that they can see you know we talked about uh instead of giving to the north american mission board southern baptist churches should be investing in education programs or building like funding some sort of Christian cooperative program or even a Christian school that parents can send their kids to. So they don't have to send their kids to public school. Yeah. So you, know, you could just replace, you know, a lot of churches spend like 11% of their budget on NAM or cooperative program giving. They could just put that back into their own church, build a school. And, you know, that would first of all, bring more people into your church because you're providing an alternative education source. And, you would disciple your children better so a lot of things that we could be doing here that we kind of don't because we use world international missions as a fig leaf for our lack of creativity hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know any Southern Baptist church that gives eleven percent to anything, but I, I take. I, it. I feel like there, there's got to be. Uh, I, I've heard about churches that said that they were doing that and then stopped giving, and they were giving as high as that. So I think most I, of the Southern Baptist guys that I know who would be more conservative, like you know, it seems like most of them give two, two to three percent towards SBC. Period. The cooperative fund or whatever. But, but anyways, I but I hear your, I hear your point. Right. So, yeah, uh, churches can do more. My point is just, I think Christians can do more. Yes. I want to separate the kingdom of God from from being um, back to the Venn diagram. I don't think if we if we draw a circle of the church and then we just draw a circle of the kingdom of God, um, I I don't think that that's a circle. I think there's plenty of overlap, and there should be, um, but I don't think that's a circle. And so I I want to you know continually as a pastor and with podcasts and all these different things, I want to continue to um, address individual Christians, not just uh, churches, you know, what to do with their budget, but individual Christians. Right. right. What, how are you living? What are you doing? What are you buying? What are you building? What are you investing in? Um, right. I'm yeah. just recalling past uh, articles or whatever that I've published. So yeah, yeah no, those those are some I, of the I past. both are important. They're both important. Yeah. All right. I, I got, um, I'm going to have to go here in a second. All righty. I, I basically ran through basically most of my patient questions. So otherwise cool. I'll just say, uh, you can support evangelical dark web at the Patreon like system at evangelical dark web.org. I'll let you plug your stuff. Yeah. So right response ministries.com. Um, if you want to check out uh, our website, but most people just follow us on YouTube. So just look up Right Response Ministries on YouTube. Um, also, if you're like me, I don't like watching YouTube because I, I like to be productive. I like to listen as I'm doing something at the same time. Uh, so you can, you know, iTunes, Spotify, any podcast platform, you'll be able to find us. Just look up uh, Theology Applied. That's our flagship show, Theology Applied with Right Response Ministries. And so you could do the podcast, you could do YouTube, you could go to rightresponseministries.com if you want to check out the website. Um, we you know, we have a conference coming up. It's sold out. It's been sold out. We sold out six months in advance. We've got over uh, 100 people on the waiting list. So I, I don't feel like it's even worth plugging because it's just going to disappoint people. <laughs> people keep emailing saying, please, can we come? And it's like, no. We're already, we, we already have admitted more people um, substantially over what, what the venue can actually fit. So, But we're planning on doing another conference that we'll start announcing later on um, towards the end of the year. And so, um, yeah, so we're constantly doing things for people to partner with and lots of material that people can listen to. And yeah, that's right response. Yeah. And I appreciate your content and what you do. So I uh, definitely recommend subscribing to him as well. And I'll get all that linked in the description because I have not done any description for this. Uh, but that's kind of what happens when you're working at three o'clock in the morning. Some things just slip. Uh, so anyway, have a blessed day, everybody. And we will catch you on. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.